following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, so we're going to get into um, God's Word this morning, and we're taking a break from the Philippians series to focus particularly on Easter. Although I have to say, last week gave us the perfect run-up, didn't it? That passage in Philippians 2, we looked um, at the, the dying and the rising of Jesus, so prepared us for this. But we're going to look particularly at the story of Jesus' resurrection this morning, and uh, Jeff's going to come and uh, read a passage from John chapter 20. So if you want to grab that in your Bibles, thank you, Jeff. Good morning. And just remembering, John, this is his first-hand account. He was there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Back in uh, 2006, I think it was, I took a trip to Israel and Spent a couple of weeks in Israel and, and one of those weeks around Jerusalem. One of, the, one of the sites we visited in Israel was a place called the Garden Tomb. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful spot, but um, we visited the tomb on a Sunday. And funnily enough, the gates were closed and we couldn't get in, which I thought was a little bit ironic. You know, you sort of expect the Easter tomb would be open on a Sunday rather than closed on a Sunday, but uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't get in. So that was that. But um, a few years later, with a group from Shore. We went back to Israel, and this time we got into the garden tomb because we didn't go on a Sunday. So inside, it's a beautiful complex, um, and it's, it's just these lovely sprawling botanical gardens, all sorts of flowers so you can wander around. There's seats for reflecting. There's little walks that you can do meandering through the garden. 
And then over on one side of the garden, there's a rock wall there, and there's a, there's a tomb, a small, quite a small tomb, cut out with a stone beside. And you can get in, you kind of crouch, you have to crouch down to get in. And you can sort of huddle around inside this little rock enclave and imagine um, what it might have been for the resurrection of Jesus to take place. What it might have been for those first couple of disciples to come into that tomb and see just the strips of linen lying there. Now, I don't know whether that is the actual historical tomb that Jesus was, was raised from the dead. And I asked our tour guide about it. I, I said to him, do you think this is historically accurate as the site where Jesus was raised from the dead? And he looked at me with this cheeky little grin and he said, I just like to come here for the flowers. So I'm taking that as a no. It probably wasn't the historical site. But if it wasn't there, it was somewhere around that area. Like we know it was around that old city of Jerusalem somewhere. But I think one thing that the garden tomb complex got right is that they tried to reflect this idea that the place where Jesus was buried was a garden. And John's gospel that Jeff just read out, it's the only gospel that tells us that. Matthew, Mark, Luke don't mention it, but John talks about when Jesus was placed in this tomb. It was this tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, and it was a garden. There was this garden setting. We don't usually imagine that, but you've got to sort of picture this in our mind's eye, that there was this garden environment. And I think that's significant. Like we could gloss that detail, but I think the fact that Jesus was raised in a garden has some importance Uh, The places where things happen in the Bible are important. Location is important. And you think about a garden. Some of the most significant things that happened in the Bible happened in gardens. And I want to just take you on a little tour this morning of four gardens. Okay, we're just going to walk through four gardens. And what I'm hoping is that this will give you a picture of the resurrection, maybe in a broader context that we can think about that one event that happened of Jesus rising from the dead as part of a much bigger story that these gardens walk us through. So we're just going to walk through four gardens, all right? The first garden, this is the easiest one, and you'll guess it straight away. The very first garden in the Bible is what? Garden of Eden. You're awake. Fantastic. The Garden of Eden. Here's my little pot plant representing the Garden of Eden. So God created humanity. And he placed them in a garden. It's the first location that human beings inhabited in in history. And we're told that God walked with human beings in the garden. Like That's how close the relationship was. When God created Adam and Eve, he walked with them in the garden. There was that sense of relationship there. And God placed human beings in this garden to cultivate the garden and to work it and to take care of it. But I don't think God's intention was ever that we would just stay in the garden. When you read those first couple of chapters of the Bible, you get this sense where God is saying, now you fill the earth and and you take what's here and you extend this out. So God didn't want humanity to spend their whole time in the Garden of Eden. That was one little corner of the world. But what he wanted, what God intended for humanity originally was that they would take what was happening in the garden and they would extend that throughout the whole earth. That in a sense, the, the, the design in the beginning was that the whole earth would become the Garden of Eden. You know, like God could have done that himself, could have just made the whole earth the Garden of Eden, but he didn't. He created a garden, and then he said to human beings, now you take it, and you work it, and you cultivate, and you nurture, and you extend, and, and create. 
and keep on creating and create life and create community and create society, create civilization, create cities, create nations, create uh, culture. You keep on extending out what's going on in the garden until it fills and covers the whole earth. That was God's plan for us. So God created the world good, but it was going to get even better. And that was a task that he left to us. Now, it doesn't take long if you think about that first garden, what was going on in the garden. doesn't take long for the whole story to come off the rails, does it? Those of you that know the story, right? Two chapters in, what happens? It all just goes horribly wrong. It only takes two chapters of the Bible before the wheels completely fall off the whole story. Human beings rebel against God and usurp his authority and the relationship between God and human beings is irreparably damaged. It's completely fractured. And then that starts to ripple out to affect everything. It's not just human hearts that are damaged. It's human relationships with each other that get damaged. It's, it's human relationships with ourselves. Like that was the entrance of shame into the whole picture that we, we, we felt ashamed. Human beings felt ashamed because of what they'd done starts to even affect human beings' relationships with the land. It's harder to cultivate the land. It's harder to work the land. It works against us rather than for us. So you get this ripple effect where the brokenness that Adam and Eve experienced starts to spread out and out and out through all creation. And Adam and Eve are sent away from the garden. They're expelled. They're sent outside the garden. They're sent out to the east. The east in the Bible is usually a Bad place. It's like East Coast Base, you know. It's <laughs> far away. It's far away land. <laughs> no, East Coast Base is great. Uh, it's just, they're outside of, of God's presence now. They're outside of God's blessing. They're, they're expelled. And so there's that sense of alienation and the whole story of what was supposed to happen with this garden filling the earth. That seems like it's over now. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And what I want you to see here is that what happened in that garden is the source of all the problems that we inherit today. So you look around the world today, every, every trace of evil, every act of violence, every act of injustice and corruption, it all goes back to the garden. All of, you might not see that directly. And, and for people that don't follow Jesus, they make all sorts of other connections. And there are all kinds of uh, other secondary reasons. But ultimately, as Christians, we can trace every ounce of human evil and every ounce of brokenness in the world all the way back to what happened in the garden. That's the ripple effect of that first act of sin that was committed. And we've all paid the price for it. It's been carried on down and down and down and down and down. And now the world is a broken, messed up place because of that first act. There's a program um, Anna and I just finished watching on uh, Netflix, I think, called Dope Sick. Anyone seen that? It's an interesting, interesting program. It's, it follows this pharmaceutical company in the U.S. called Purdue Pharmacy. And they started manufacturing, this is the 1990s, I think, started manufacturing this pain medication, uh, which was billed as a miracle drug. And it had this amazing effect short term on pain. If you're suffering from moderate pain, if you're suffering from chronic pain, the stuff was incredible. But what it was based on was opioids. And so highly addictive stuff. And so you have the story of this company making massive profits off these drugs and pushing it out, selling, 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 marketing, marketing, marketing. And underneath, just huge addiction 
was going on, just the stories of lives being ruined by this thing, of communities being torn apart, people losing their lives, people overdosing, this crime spree, opioid crisis starting to spread through the US. But at, at, at the top of the chain, these Purdue executives still just getting rich off the back of all of this happening. There's this one scene in the, in the show where uh, Richard, Richard Sackler, who's the president of Purdue, he's standing there with his brother in front of a map of the world. They're trying to get the drug into Europe. And, and he sort of holds out his arms and says, we are going to cure the world of its pain. And, and it just strikes you as you hear it, it just strikes you as this incredibly glib, hollow, empty sentiment that I don't know whether or not he believed what he was saying, but this kind of grandiose claim, we're going to cure the world of its pain. And then underneath that, all the corruption and the devastation and the addiction that was being caused, just total contrast to what's being said. And, and you, you wonder whether that's, in a way, a parable of the world that we live in, that we can have these kind of notions of making the world a better place and ushering in a better society and improving uh, culture. But ultimately, all that is doing is masking the brokenness and the pain that runs through every single human heart. Like ultimately, we think we're going to bring about a better world if we can just get better elected leaders. You know, if we can just get better healthcare, if we can just get a better welfare system, whatever it is. Ultimately, all of those things may help. They will never go to the root of the problem because the root of the problem goes back to the garden. The root of the problem goes back to the evil that runs through every single human heart. I remember Matt Hakiaka, who used to be on the New Zealand Parole Board, standing on the stage in our men's ministry meeting, talking about the fact that ultimately the social ills that we see in New Zealand society will never be changed other than a change in the human heart. Because that's the fundamental core. We can, we can change a lot of things and they may have good effect, but ultimately the root problem runs through every one of our hearts. We are all the problem because we've all inherited the sickness of those first human beings. This is what I, what I want you to see. Every trace of evil in our hearts and in the world today all goes back to that first garden. And so then we come to the second garden. Now, let me set this up for you. Here's my second garden. Lucky we've got a few pot plants. The second garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you can imagine, this is hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years after that first tragedy in the garden. But imagine uh, one night in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see the solitary figure, Jesus of Nazareth, and he's praying. His, his followers are already asleep, but Jesus is there agonizing in prayer. He's sweating profusely. His sweat's like drops of blood on the ground. And he's praying, Father, if this cup could be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So those are the words Jesus uttered in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to see the connection between two gardens. You've got this one garden here, and you have Adam. He was the first gardener, really. Adam had a choice. Was he going to be faithful to God or do his own thing? And essentially what Adam said is, not your will, 
but mine be done. Thanks very much. And now you have the new Adam, Jesus, coming along. And he's back in a garden. It's not, it's not inconsequential when these things happen. You know, places are important. Now Jesus is in a garden again. It's like history is repeating itself. And now, although different circumstances, Jesus faces the same fundamental choice. Will he remain faithful to God? Or will he just do his own thing? And he says, not my will, but yours be done to his heavenly father. The opposite of what Adam had chosen. And with that, Jesus takes humanity on a different course. Jesus fundamentally shifts the whole trajectory of human history. Adam was taking it one way. Jesus starts taking it in a new direction now, full of hope and full of life, starting to undo the problem that Adam had created, Adam and Eve had created all the way back here. Do you know what the word Gethsemane means? It means, it means to press or to crush. And it's taken from, they used to have these old olive presses, big stone things. And it would involve a huge, big stone slab being lowered down on top of the, on top of the olives and, and crushing them, pressing them. And that's where you get the oil from. It's a fitting description, isn't it, of what Jesus experiences in that moment. That idea of thinking about what was going to happen to him the next day, of thinking about what he was about to go through, it's just crushing him. It's just pressing. He's carrying the weight of the world on its shoulders in this moment. And all of that was just a premonition of what was coming. Because that following day, when Jesus hung there on that cross, that's exactly what happened. And you, you could take that picture of the olive press. Think about that for what happened on Good Friday. That, that big stone slab of our sin, the big stone rock of, of your sin and my sin and your failure and mine and all the things that you've done wrong and the things that I've done wrong, our flaws and our indiscretions, and our, our transgressions, and our failure to live in the way that God designed us to live, all of that, that was that big stone slab placed upon Jesus, and it crushed him, and it, and it squeezed the life out of him. It wasn't just the physical suffering on the cross. It was being crushed by the weight of our sin, by the weight of everything that had gone wrong in this garden, everything that had come out of this, all the brokenness, all the evil, all the corruption, all the abuse, all the injustice, all of the sin, all of the evil, all of the inequality, all of it, every bit of it was placed upon Jesus on the cross. He carried it in his own body. He bore it in his own flesh. He took it to the grave and he died for it to take the full and final punishment upon himself for every single bit of it. Everything you deserved, Jesus carried it. Everything that should have happened to you, Jesus bore it. He stood in your place. He died your death. He took your place on the cross and died on your behalf. He died the death you should have died, the death I should have died. That's how significant the cross was. That's the commitment Jesus made in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what he was signing up for when he said, not my will, but yours be done. Handing his life over to be crushed, to be broken, and to be pierced for our transgressions so that we could be healed. Now, as you sit with the weight of that, and you think about what happened in that garden of Gethsemane, you think about what happened on the cross, let's start bringing in the next garden. And here is the garden that uh, Jeff read the passage about, John chapter 20. 
the garden tomb. That early on that Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. It's empty. She goes away and runs back to Peter and John, tells them the tomb's empty. They come and have a look. Jesus isn't there. And then you have this interesting little encounter where Mary turns around in the garden and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. Did you notice that little, that little bit in the past? It's an unusual sort of little reference. She turns around and she sees Jesus, but, but the way that John writes it, he says, thinking he was the gardener, she said to him, do you know where they've put the body? Now, you could sort of just ignore that. Oh, well, Mary, just a case of mistaken identity there. But I wonder, in view of everything we know about these gardens, whether John is saying to us, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. She thought he was the gardener. Do you get it? Like, do you, do you, can you hear what's going on in the story? At one stage, yes, it was a case of mistaken identity. But at another level, maybe Jesus was the gardener. Maybe there's that sense that Jesus is coming to undo all of the wrongs that happened in this garden and bring about a new beginning. So Jesus comes in like, like a gardener. He comes into all the overgrown weeds. The world had become like this big overgrown garden. Thorns and thistles and gorse everywhere. Jesus comes into the garden and he just starts clearing away those thorns, clearing away the thistles of sin, clearing away everything that had become wrong with the world, all of the damage that the evil one had done. And in the middle of that garden, he plants resurrection life. In the middle of that garden, a new planting of something new. Hope springs forth. Life springs forth. Faith springs forth. I mean, Jesus had talked this way even before he died. He said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it, it won't produce anything. But if it dies, it will produce, it will multiply. It will give life to many things. And now Jesus is like that seed who died in the garden. But through that seed being sown in the ground, now his life brings forth hope and blessing for the world. This is what Jesus has done for all of creation, for the entirety of the world, undoing what happened in that garden, tearing away the thorns and the thistles of the brokenness of the world and beginning this new planting of good things, healthy things, life, forgiveness, hope, reconciliation, faith, love, a reunion with our heavenly father. All of this is what Jesus accomplished. And we can think of him as a gardener who comes into the garden of creation, the garden of the world, and begins to heal and mend all that had gone wrong. It's just like as God walked with human beings in the garden, back in the garden of Eden, you remember that? God walks with them in the garden. And now at the garden tomb, God is walking with human beings again. Isn't that great? But now as Jesus, back in the garden, walking again with human beings. And as Jesus stands there and he says Mary's name, Mary, she recognizes who he is. And she experiences that life for herself. Mary is renewed. This is the same Mary, remember, that Jesus had cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene. I don't know whether you've seen that program, The Chosen. Any of you watch that? It's really good. Just Google The Chosen. Uh, we just watched the first couple of episodes last night. And the first time, based on the Gospels, but not, not exactly the words that were said in the Gospels, but giving you a slice of life. And the first time that Jesus appears in the, in the series 
is this encounter with Mary Magdalene. Not the resurrection, but earlier on when she's wrestling with her own demons, literally. And then Jesus says her name, Mary. And she's healed. This is the same Mary now that meets Jesus in the garden. So she had a backstory. She had a past. And she's got some baggage. But now Jesus comes as a gardener into her own life and begins tearing out the thorns and the thistles and bringing something new. And this is what I want to say to you on Easter Sunday morning. It's Jesus comes to us to bring renewal and to bring healing into our lives. He does this for the world in the big, big picture, the big story. But what Jesus does for the whole world, he comes to you personally and he says, I want to bring this hope into your life personally. He is the gardener who wants to come into your life, clear away thorns and thistles and gorse, clear away stuff that's unhealthy, clear away stuff that is destructive and plant new resurrection hope and life within you. This is what Jesus wants to do in your life on this day of all days, Resurrection Sunday, to bring that hope into your life. I don't know whether you've uh, read a book called The Shack. Many years ago, it came out uh, by a guy called William Paul Young. Now, that book was based on a story. I didn't realize this until recently, but it's based on his story, his own life story. Uh, he had a terrible childhood, William Paul Young, and a terrible relationship with his dad, uh, really abusive father, and he just suffered so much at the hands of his dad. And he talks about how because he was broken, he became so broken, he became a breaker, you know, like, as, as often happens, right? So he became a destructive person then, and he hurt other people, and he damaged other people. He just had a really, really troubled upbringing, troubled life. And he eventually got married. I think he hoped that by getting married, you know, his problems would be solved and a new, new corner would be turned. But he brought that destruction into his marriage, ended up being unfaithful to his wife. And he talks about that time that he had to go and confess to his wife what he'd done, just being the hardest, gut-wrenching moment of his life. And it sent him spiraling down into absolute rock bottom, just a dark, dark, dark place of, of desperation, total hopelessness. But from that place... God began rebuilding. And, and from absolute deadness of life, God began planting something new within him. He talks about the first thing that he did, one of the first things was to go and find a counselor. I think he literally just got it out of the yellow pages, just found counselor, went and saw someone. And that was the beginning for him of an 11-year journey of God starting to take incredibly broken pieces and start mending and start healing his life. He said, it took me 11 years to wipe the face of my father off the face of God because his image of God as father was so damaged by his own experience with his own dad. There was so much healing that needed to happen. But over 11 years, 11 long years, God worked this healing in his life and is still healing him now. But he's now in a space where he speaks to other people experiencing shame, particularly men in their lives, experiencing deep shame because of our past, because of things that we've done or things that have been done to us. And he's able to speak into their lives in a way that can relate to them because he knows exactly what that's been like. This is the work that Jesus has done. And that's just one life. That's not, I know that's not your story, but that is a story. But Jesus says to every one of us, wherever you are at, I want to start working in the garden of your life. That's not going to be comfortable. Sometimes it's going to hurt. Because Jesus is going to start clearing away things that are damaging in your life. And you may not even realize what those are yet. 
But Jesus is going to start clearing away some thorns and some thistles, maybe some things that, that need to go. But he does that because he wants to bring hope and he wants to bring renewal into your life. He wants to plant good things. And I want to just encourage you this morning to open your life up to Jesus, the gardener, and allow him to do that cultivating work in your life. He doesn't stand at a distance from you just as this God who's raised from the dead. He wants to get his hands dirty in the soil of your life and start working and start bringing about new things. And if you're open to it this morning, just you, even now, just in the quietness of your heart, you just say, Jesus, I'm, I'm willing. I want to open up the garden of my life and ask that you'd come in and plant something new, plant something real, put down deep roots and take away the stuff that you don't want to be there. Jesus, I'm open to that and I want you to do this deep work in my life. And so then we come to this final garden in the Bible. And we save the best till last. This garden, let me read you. It's not as well known, but it, it appears right at the end of the whole story. You don't need to turn there, but just let me read you a couple of verses from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. You can, you can hear this, this picture. This is a picture of the future. This is a picture when Jesus is going to return one day and bring about his kingdom on earth, bring about the fullness of his kingdom on earth. And can you hear in that description how it sounds like that future kingdom? It's got these sorts of echoes of the first garden. Can you hear that? You've got, you've got this river going down the middle of the, of the garden. You've got the tree of life that was back in the first garden. You've got all these echoes of the Garden of Eden. It's like when we get to the end of the story, you're coming sort of full circle, back to the beginning, except even better. Because as well as this beautiful natural environment now, you've got a street down the middle of the city. So think about this as a garden city. It's not just a garden, but this is the future garden city. It's a beautiful paradise, but it's also full of life and full of human community because there's going to be a countless multitude there from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's described like a city with a street. It's got gates. So there's this kind of natural and urban kind of mix in this picture. In some ways, it's like the Garden of Eden. In some ways, that's what the future new creation is going to be like. In some ways, that's what heaven is going to be like. But heaven and the new heavens and the new earth is going to be so much better than what happened in that first garden. Don't think that in the end, all that's going to happen is we just go straight back to the beginning. We don't want to go back to Eden because the serpent was there. Right? Remember him? Yeah, he was the one that did quite a bit of damage. When we get to the new creation, no more serpent. No more sin. No more temptation in our hearts that lead us down paths that we know are the wrong paths. We won't even have the desire to sin anymore. We won't even have the desire to make Stupid decisions. We would all our hearts will desire is the glory of God to worship Him forever and ever. And on and on it will go into the new creation where we will be with one another and we will be with Father, Son, and Spirit on into eternity. Endless joy, endless adventure, endless blessing, endless learning, 
endless experience of the abundance of life that God promises us. That's what God always intended right at the beginning. This is what God wanted for humanity in the beginning. And when sin came along and wrecked that, God didn't give up. He didn't say, well, now you've ruined it. I guess I'm going to have to figure out some other story. God worked and he worked and he worked through his preordained plan to eventually, through Jesus, bring us all the way to the new creation, which was the plan all along, where finally the whole earth becomes like the Garden of Eden, but even better. The whole earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's where we're heading. And this part of the Easter story too is pointing us towards that future garden, the garden city. There was a, uh, an interview done with Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, not long before he died. And they asked him about his views on the afterlife and death. And he said this, For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. I like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. And then he paused for a little while and said this. But on the other hand, maybe it's like an on-off switch. Click and you're gone. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. There's one man, well-known man, wrestling with this question of, is there something? Is there something to hold on to in the future? Is there something to look forward to? Is there something after this life? And he died without that certainty by the sounds of it. He died hoping and searching and maybe there is, but maybe it's click and you're gone. And so many people live in that space. You may live in that space now, not quite knowing, maybe hoping for the best. And I hope there's some kind of heaven and who knows. What we know is because of the resurrection of Jesus, that future is certain. This garden here makes this one guaranteed. That's why Jesus is called the first fruits of all those who rise from the dead. Because Jesus was resurrected, we will all be resurrected. What God did for Jesus on Easter Sunday morning, he will one day do for all of us who love him and follow him, who belong to him. Jesus was raised from the dead. One day you'll be raised from the dead as well. That's the certain hope that we have because of Easter. It's that future guarantee. We don't need a wonder. It's not wishful thinking. We don't need to be you know, uncertain about that. We have the rock solid assurance that day is coming, that hope will be real, that garden city will one day be here. So I just encourage you to just take in the whole vista of what God has done. And today we, we celebrate this garden, but I want you to see this. I want you to see the whole story that what God did here was answering this, this question, this problem, all the way back in that first garden. And what Jesus wrestled with here in Gethsemane led to his death and resurrection. And all of that guaranteed this incredible future for you and for me, for all those who belong to Jesus. And I want to just encourage you, my friends, if you're here this morning and you don't belong to Jesus yet, and you have not yet stepped into this life-giving relationship with our Savior who gave his life and rose again, then today's the day. I don't know how many steps you've already taken on your spiritual journey and where you are, but there is no better day than Resurrection Sunday to step into the arms of Jesus 
and accept his invitation to eternal life. Whoever believes and whosoever may come receives eternal life from the hand of God. There's nothing you can do to earn that. It's a gift you receive from Jesus. So take in the story and enjoy the big picture and open your heart to the one who stands at the center of it all, our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah, let's pray together. God, we're just amazed by the story. And as we step back, God, we're just amazed by you. And, and we think about the way, God, that you knew from, from the beginning, from before the beginning. You knew all that would unfold. You knew all of the pain that would be unleashed in the Garden of Eden. You saw it all. You knew it all. And God, yet in spite of it, you decided to create and you decided to redeem and you sent your son to live, to die, to be raised again for our salvation and for the healing of the nations, for the healing of the world. So Jesus, we are just in awe of you and we are so humbled and grateful by what you have done in purchasing our lives and our hope and our freedom. God, would you lift our eyes up this Easter to see the bigger picture, to see the bigger story, but would you move our hearts to be open to the work that you want to do in each of our lives. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.